Hi there, and welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Liam Garrity. Today, we are bringing you one of our most popular episodes from the back catalogue, a conversation from 2021 with Global Vice President and Chief Design Officer at IBM, Aaron Palmick. Design has always been a big part of IBM, but its impact has never been bigger. And like they say, with great power comes great responsibility. In this episode, Fergal Reid, our own Senior Director of Machine Learning, sat down with Aaron to talk about the role design plays at IBM, the importance of user research, and the principles of building ethical, sustainable AI. So let's head over to studio to Aaron and Fergal. Aaron, thank you very much for coming here today. Um, we're really delighted for you to take your time and uh, to come on our show. And uh, to just kind of start things off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and what, what drew you to IBM? Yeah, uh, thank you for having me in the show. I am a user experience practitioner um, from the day I started sort of thinking about life. So whether I mean from an academic standpoint, I did my bachelor's in industrial engineering, where I learned a little bit about sort of the mechanics of producing things. And then I graduated into the master's program in human-computer interaction, where it was really about human-machine relationships and the art and science of user experience. From there on, I started my career in Oracle. I spent there around 13 years or so. I got a chance to work on a gamut of products, all the way from really technology-oriented products and users, like databases and application servers, to the other end of the spectrum like uh, self-service apps for salespeople to go, you know, put in their contact information. And that drew me to the power of design and how design can really help solve problems regardless of the domain. Beyond that, I, I joined a, a smaller company called Progress Software, where I set up a user experience practice and they were getting into the space of platform as a service and data integration. While I was working there, um, IBM started having a conversation and what drew me to IBM was to be this part of the, the infrastructure and help and influence the transformation of this you know, hundred year old company and at scale. The heritage of IBM, and we all know it, it's, it's a company known for innovation from punch cards to uh, selective typewriters to mainframes to PCs and now in software, you know, whether you think about cloud, security, blockchain, quantum computing, AI, so all of these. So the whole essence of this, I was a part of the journey to lead with design-based differentiation, and that was a huge draw. So I'm kind of, I'm looking at there, and you say you kind of started off in industrial engineering and human-computer interaction, and do, do, do you sort of think of yourself more as a designer or a HCI expert or a user researcher, or can, can you kind of help me understand a little bit more about when you look at it holistically, what do you think of yourself as, as now? So I think of myself as a designer, someone okay. who can help solve a problem or generate a business outcome. And in doing so, we're going to use sort of different practices and competencies to help, like user research or system thinking or conversational um, elements, things like that. Okay, those are all just sort of tools in your toolbox. You have a lot of experience with them, but you're, you're trying to solve a business problem and you're a designer. Absolutely. And so, you know, can you tell me a little bit about your, your role now with IBM? I know IBM is a, 
a large organization, I think, as you alluded to there, do so many different things. And honestly, from a, you know, a perspective of a company like Intercom, we're a lot smaller and just you know, thinking about the scale and everything that goes on there is almost, it's almost daunting from the outside. So can you tell us a little bit about you know, what you do, what your role is, and where you sit in IBM? I know IBM has just so much kind of things in data and AI. Can you tell us a little bit about how you fit into that? Yeah, um, I am the chief design officer and design executive for IBM products mainly on the software side, uh, I would say. Um, so I play sort of three different hats, if I can call it that. As a chief design officer, I'm responsible for the visioning and the design concepts and um, connecting the dots between these technologies to build products that users love. As a design executive, I'm responsible for ensuring that we build products that generate business outcomes that are in line with the mission statement of the company and um, design has equal seat in the table. And finally, as a business executive, in my own way, I'm trying to help IBM being a dominant player in the world of hybrid cloud and AI. So from a portfolio standpoint, you know, it covers a gamut of, of software and, and tooling and um, applications from public cloud, our, our hybrid cloud portfolio, the world of data, data governance, business intelligence, data analytics, AI, AI tooling, lifecycle, applications with embedded AI, so on and so forth. So in, in some ways, I'm helping influence IBM's direction in building products that users simply love. That, that sounds like an amazing amount of leverage. It sounds like a, a huge span of influence. And do you chiefly achieve this doing sort of, you know, setting vision or do you, do you like run several orgs or how, how do you achieve that, 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 that leverage? Yeah. So from an organizational standpoint, it's a centralized organization where all the designers that are tied to the different missions of the different business units and portfolios, they all report up together and we share design systems, design principles, the way we work across the board. So that's, that's the practice we have. Okay, interesting. So this is kind of a, a large centralized design org, and then it's kind of reaching out across this this big span of the business, presumably to try and sort of you know bring coherent principles and coherent action to, to all these these different initiatives. Is that is that sort of fair? Yeah, that is correct. I would I would characterize it as centralized in essence and in principles and in career competency and practice but embedded in execution. Okay, so individual designers and parts of your, your org will then embed into maybe product development teams where they're working with um, a bunch of engineers or product folk or whoever else uh, from, from, from other orgs. Would that be? Absolutely. Got yes. it, got it. So I'd love to learn a little bit about design thinking at IBM. And uh, we have a quote here from one of the key people in IBM in the 50s, Watson Jr., who famously said that good design is good business. You know, I'd love to hear a little bit about, like, what does this mean? Does it still hold true? How do you sort of operationalize that? How, how, is, is that just a, you know, a nice soundbite, or is that something that operationally sort of affects the business of IBM? Um, actually, let me just take a step back and let's, can I give my perspective on what we mean by good design? And then we'll get to good business. So good design in the enterprise is really about enabling an user to get their job done. 
in a system or a set of you know products um, without any friction. Good design is about increasing user engagement and their trust of the product and the system they're working with. Good design is also about what I would say ethical design. So doing no harm, avoiding dark patterns. Good design perhaps can also be about solving real problems and with real user pain points. In my personal perspective on good design as a design principle is really designing for the essentials versus the superficials. So if that's good design, good business is a sort of how can we apply the, the tenets of good design to drive better business and better user outcomes and customer interactions. So if we have a great portfolio of products that serve user needs and user experience becomes a value proposition, then it improves the return on investment. So reduces things like support costs, increases brand loyalty, increases the amount of users who are willing to try out our new products, which eventually help user adoption and engagement and so on and so forth. So there are direct and indirect relationships of design to business. And I think that was the essence of the code. Can there be a tension there? I mean, so I, I, I really like the way you set that up, which is that, you know, we're, we're trying to achieve business objective. We're trying to solve the user's problem. And that to that extent, good design is good business. Is there a tension there sometimes where, you know, maybe the user wants something that's cheaper or faster, but then we kind of feel that, oh, well, you know, we want to design it more. Can things be over-designed? Can they be under-designed? Does there ever any tension or, or would you kind of say, no, you know, these two things should always be completely aligned? So in an ideal world, yes, it should be completely aligned, but I will be amiss to say that there isn't a tension. And maybe that tension is a good thing. So, you know, let me give you a little bit of a perspective on how we deal with this sort of tension. You asked a little bit about how do we practice design thinking at IBM? And, and it is somewhat tied to this perspective. So in IBM, we have taken the design thinking sort of principles out there, and there are many, which is essentially an innovation framework, and applied it to and the enterprise where scale is a problem. And we have sort of three components to work with, but the main part is users, customers are a North Star. Okay, so three components. First, we have come up with principles that help guide us. And that includes the, the fact that we believe in, in reinvention. So we don't get married to our designs and get too stuck up with that. So we keep, keep rotating and iterating on that. We intentionally create teams that are diverse so that we have different perspectives on how the design needs to come through. We have this concept of a loop that drives us where we observe the sort of the customers, the, the pain points, their mental models and so forth, we reflect and then we make, and we do, do this over and over again. And finally, the keys. There's something called keys that helps us align. So we have this concept of, of hills, which are like mission statements that gets alignment between product management, basically the business side, uh, the feasibility aspect of it, the go-to-market part of it, the user needs part of it, and into a benefit statement that has a clear and tangible differentiation built in. And so this alignment of missions through the Hills framework is what helps us reduce this tension. Because I feel 
a lot of our challenge in bringing good design and good products has to do with alignment. And this helps us. Got it. Okay. And so, so would you say that you try and front load that tension or, or sort of in, in an individual project that you try and front load an opinion on, on the right balance there through this? Is, is that sort of what you're saying? Or are those sort of iterative processes that you just you keep on revisiting again and again and again as you build a product and bring it to market? It is definitely iterative. I would say that um, depending on different kind of projects or products we work on, some are organic, so we start from the ground up. So in those cases, we have the luxury of defining an alignment from day one. But we also have products that's been in the market for a long time and our users have evolved. So we need to continuously iterate towards those goals. Earlier on, you were sort of saying that, you know, the, the canvas here or the, the, the area you operate here in is, is in the enterprise. And, you know, so the North Star is, is the user and solving the user's problem. Do you think design has changed in the enterprise, right? So I, I sometimes hear this narrative that, you know, back in the 90s, software and enterprise software was really clunky and really poor. And that design was an afterthought rather than a priority. And, you know, people maybe sometimes unfairly say, oh, enterprise software is terrible. It's, it's really badly designed historically. And that, you know, that's changed in the last 10 years. Would you agree with that? Or would you say it was an unfair characterization? And, you know, are things changing? Have things changed? I would agree with that. I think we've gone through an evolution. And evolution is somewhat based on necessity. I call it the Darwinism of design. Right, so we right, move right. from ignorance to afterthought to table stakes and now to differentiation. And honestly, you know, it, it had to happen. We have a new age of users coming into the market. They're used to interacting with mobile devices and different kinds of apps and different interaction models. And this enterprise software that were built many years ago, they don't really match up to the modern day users. So we have to evolve to kind of at least have a longer shelf life of our product. So that's kind of this idea that user expectations have just increased because the B2C sort of apps have just gotten, you know, more user-centric um, in terms of their UX and UI. And so, you know, the, the bar has raised for all of us, I guess, build, building business. Yeah, the bar has definitely raised. And I think it's blurry. Uh, what is a consumer product? What is an enterprise product? <laughs> I, I think in this day and age, I would say if you want to design for people and humans, and the, the context of use could be different. But there should not be a... Uh, specific focus on consumer versus enterprise. So, you know, we're always sort of talking about uh, customer feedback and that loop and how that should, you know, inform our decisions. There's a famous Steve Jobs quote that kind of comes up in this area. You've got to start with the customer experience and work backwards to the technology. Do you think that's true for AI products as well? Or are there special rules here or special constraints because they're more technology heavy? I think that the principles of good design and good user experience apply regardless of technology or medium. So whether it's designing for AI or, or not at a, at a macro level. Now, AI adds an aspect of sort of relationship building and collaboration that we haven't had before. So that's very specific. We have to think about, you know, trust and other, other things as we design for AI. But generally... I understand you have a team of user research professionals within your design org, and I'd love to understand a little bit about how their input 
informs your process and your product strategy as you set out to design an AI product specifically. Uh, how do you start? I mean, you mentioned that AI products have specific risks, maybe in terms of uh, user trust that makes it really important to get users in there early. Uh, do you use your research team to try and mitigate those risks or, or can you tell us a little bit about, about doing research for AI products? Yeah, absolutely. So our user researchers at a, at a high level, they partner with product designers and product managers to produce data-driven insights as well as intuition-based insights that we get from directly from users with the goal to influence the product planning and development. So user research as a, as a profession, you, know, you can get different kinds of data. Uh, you can run generative studies, you can run evaluative studies, all the way from structured usability tests to very unstructured diary studies. You take all of this information and, and feed it into the funnel that helps inform the product. So from a value proposition of user research, I feel like user research actually helps uncover what I would call the, the five Ys and two H's. So who, what, where, when, and why, and how and how much. And these are all variables that are important to, to decide on where to take the product or the strategy. Now in terms of strategy, uh, user research, as I said, are different kinds of studies and different objectives. And we try to marry the objectives towards the division of the product level OKRs. So some things we do include things like identifying uh, unmet or latent needs in existing or new markets, or say model key ecosystems and market segments. We help aid prioritization of roadmaps and milestones, as I said before. We also look at the competitive landscape and see how they're responding to market opportunities with experience. Uh, we do things like brand equity evaluation and user perception because perception in this day and age goes a long way in, in user adoption. We also identify factors that influence purchasing adoption, especially in the enterprise software. The people who end up evaluating the product may not be the one who are buying the product. So we need to, you know, we, we expand our, our, our reach to different kinds of personas. And then we observe how solutions is performing with users. This is the bread and butter part. As we, as we design our products, we need to ensure that we evaluate them and we define the experience outcomes based on how our customers define success, not how we do it, how our customers define success with our offerings. And we also sort of try to keep an eye out and eye forward. So can we benchmark our experiences and we can we measure where we are better or worse than our competitors or expectations. So a, a lot happening there. Um, and we have a lot of fun too, uh, by the way, uh, <laughs> a, a little story. We, we were getting into a newer market and on data ops. So we pulled together a customer workshop with sort of over 30 customers. And you know, we did our process and framework and there were around 14 or 15 focus areas. But we wanted to scale it up and we wanted to sort of expand the problem statement to figure out where are customers in their AI maturity cycle? Because as we know, AI um, as a um, technology is still up and coming in terms of adoption. So we wanted to figure out where they are. So we created this, this Lego wall, literally analog Lego wall, and we invited the customers to place Legos Lego is in Lego bricks, little Lego bricks. bricks. In Lego awesome, blocks. awesome. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, so it's a tangible way of research and data collection. 
and they were asked to kind of sort the Lego blocks into their maturity in different phases of the journey. And from that, we found that data lineage is, is one part that really bothers them. And so we ended up creating a product for it. But, but the offshoot is that research, you know, we also tend to have a lot of fun with it. Okay. So I, I guess if, you, if it's fun, if it's fun for the customer, you start to hear what they really think, right? People right. relax, they let their guard down, they tell you, you know, to give you the good stuff. They don't uh, tell you what they think you want to hear, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that's part of the relationship building. I think we can build better products if we can understand sort of user expectations and sort of psychological elements that help their adoption. And when we get them in a setting where, where it's a safe setting and we are creatively brainstorming, we, we break a lot of boundaries. So that really is helpful. We find a, a, a huge thing that research helps us with at Intercom is problem definition. I think, uh, Paul Adams, our, our head of product, is, is always telling us to, you know, spend more time defining the problem, really understanding the problem that we're trying to solve uh, to make sure that we don't spend a, a whole amount of R&D effort uh, solving a problem nobody cares about. And research is, is absolutely key for that. One thing that we often find when trying to research for AI products is it's very difficult to actually get good feedback from customers before we have a prototype, before we have an early version of the product that will actually run on their data. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's just too abstract otherwise, right? It's like, you know, you can tell someone, hey, do you want a, a self-driving car? And like, at a really, really high level, everyone is going to say yes, but um, almost everyone, I guess. But when you actually get into it and you say, okay, well, this is how it's going to perform on your road right around your house. And here's the first version of it. Complexity arises. So we often find that we need to we need to build prototypes very early when doing research for AI products. And I'd love to understand if that's something that, that resonates with IBM's experience or or if perhaps at the scale that you operate, you know, you can you learn a lot about you handle your 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 product definition in, in some form of different way. Yeah, no, we we are pretty much along the same boat. I think um we have a, a make to learn culture. And you know, we use prototypes as almost provocations for discussing the problems that need to be solved. And, and, and sometimes it spurs other ideas. Sometimes it validates the user mental model and their sort of use cases and requirements. And sometimes it weeds out the vanity products. You know, there are a lot of that as well. So, you know, I think prototype is a tangible way. And to your point, AI is, is somewhat of a a black box in a lot of users' mind, and to be able to expose what AI does, prototypes go a long way. Okay, so without sort of a prototype, it's not real enough to really understand whether it solves the problem or not. Yeah, and, and it uh, sometimes we use prototypes to generate the problem start statements to solve for, right? And that becomes an interesting starting point. And we call it sort of speculative design in our own words because we we try to venture out with different starting points. And if we can articulate them into visible, tangible concepts, then we find we get a much richer uh, discussions and that helps us. Okay, cool. So that, that's make to learn and speculative design as two sort of principles to learn by building here. Can I ask, what, what would sort of be an acceptable hit rate there? So, you know, like what, what percentage of, of things do you would sort of bring to that sort of make to learn or prototype phase eventually make it through to production. Do you feel bad if you kill 90% of things or discover 90% of things aren't 
aren't suitable or what sort of failure rate there or, or maybe failure rate's even the wrong way of putting it and what sort of a learning rate would be acceptable yeah good, good question i would say that because we have this design thinking framework and one of the part is to emphasize the fact that everything is a prototype so if everything is a prototype we expect it to evolve over time and hence we try not to get too overly emotionally attached to a specific idea or thought. And in that sense, I would say that, you know, maybe 20% of our initial ideas get into product and that's a pretty good hit rate. That actually sounds great to me right now. And um, particularly at, at the scale you operate and um, wow, that, that, that sounds amazing. Before we get into ethical AI specifically, are there any other sort of design challenges unique to AI products that you encounter? I remember you mentioned earlier about, you know, alignment and so on, the, the user being the North Star, but um, any other sort of design challenges that come to mind? So designers really have to think in terms of building trust, and that's not something we are sort of trained to do. You know, we do have empathy. We, we tend to understand a user as much as we want, but to build trust, we really need to start looking into things like the voice and tone you know, timing of the interaction, how believable it is. If it's a conversational AI, do we remember past conversations? So knowing what's important to each other and giving feedback and giving the avenue for feedback are all important things. And in, in terms of challenges, you know, first, we got to figure out if the cost of building the AI use case is actually worth the benefit it's going to give to the user. Let's not build AI for AI's sake. In deciding the right way to be transparent, so where is the AI used? Uh, what is the value to the user? These are things that, as designers, we need to kind of watch out for and, and make it part of our design process. And finally, explainability, right? Users need to decide if the insight that's provided by the AI is accurate. So how do we make that clear and transparent to users? So... Yeah, a, a lot of new things. I guess we have to learn and evolve as designers and not take for granted, especially when it comes to AI. Before we continue with today's guest, I just want to take a quick second to let you know about our amazing archive of podcasts. It's full of insights from thought leaders from the worlds of product management, design, marketing, and a lot more. People like Megan Keeney Anderson. Megan was VP of Marketing for HubSpot for over nine years. She joined us to talk about how marketers should adapt their customer acquisition strategies in the age of the internet. Internet will rise and fall and go through different iterations. And our job as content creators, as marketers, is to really study that and stay close to it and adapt. You can hear Megan's episode and lots more on intercom.com forward slash blog forward slash podcasts. Okay, let's get back to today's interview. I think that there's a few things I'd love to just understand a little bit deeper there. And when you mentioned trust, do you mean trust in the competence of the system? Or do you sort of mean more like, you know, ethical trust, trust that your data is going to be used for good that's in your interests? Or, or, or do you mean both? I mean both. So, you know, I've got a 10-year-old, and he is very curious about technology and is learning about AI. But he has this inherent sort of fear of AI, that AI is going to take over the world. So there's that part of it. But the, the second part is, what is the value that the AI is providing? Do I actually trust what it's telling me, right? And I said, so it's, it's a little bit of both. And trust is, you know, earned. You can't just 
you know, have trust from the get-go. So as, as designers, our challenge is to build it into our product. And I mean, 100% agree with that. I'm delighted to hear you say that. That totally resonates with me as well. You mentioned explainability there as well. And when I was looking through IBM's Design for AI, you've got this beautiful website with a lot of different ethics. And explainability actually is sort of a fairly top level heading there. Do you think explainability is necessary for ethical AI? Because, you know, you can have a big, incomprehensible neural network that perhaps makes state-of-the-art predictions, but it's very hard to explain exactly why it does it. Does a focus on explainability mean that we shouldn't use those sort of black box, uninterpretable methods? Or does it mean something else? Is there a way of using those, but binding that with, with another part of the system that increases trust. I, I'd love to hear kind of any thoughts yeah, on that. Yeah, I, I think that um, explainability and ethical relationships are sort of mutually related. You can't have one without the other. When you think about ethics, it's more about what you use the AI to do and how you do it. So how do you maintain fairness? How do you secure data? Keep users in control of decisions, et cetera, et cetera. Explainability is really the adoption piece of it. It's opening the black box. It's showing the quality. So the source of the data, how recent has the data been generated? What's the diversity of the data? What's the volume? And, and what's the rationale of the model? So think about, in some ways, explainability is like the nutrition label that you find at the, behind a, a box of vitamins. That's a great analogy. Okay, yes, all right. So if I can take that analogy a little bit further, maybe if someone says, hey, uh, here's this wonderful dish, but um, I can't tell you what's in it, <laughs> I'm going to be suspicious. I'm going to say, well, actually, no, maybe I'll probably want this one that where I actually know what's in it and I'm, I'm not going to eat something delicious uh, if you won't tell me that. And so yeah. actually, I know that, that's, that's great. I'm, I'm always searching for analogies that because I think so much of the work in this field of AI is, is about explaining even the, the complicated technology we use internally or to customers. And so what, what a great analogy. So, you know, in, in terms of um, some, some user research we did um, based on, you know, what, what do your users think about AI systems and what are the key adoption criteria? Trust becomes one of the important part and trust can be, you know, tied, can be mitigated with explainability and such. Uh, Around 70, 80% of, of customers and users that we worked with said that to trust their AI's output is fair, safe, and reliable is, is hugely important. And almost like 80 to 90% of them said that their organization have been negatively impacted by problems like bias with data or AI models. So, you know, when we have that inherent sort of challenge in trust, explainability becomes even more critical. And does that, does that guide you towards a certain technology direction then as well? So, I mean, does that even, does that even increase the bar at which point you'd consider deploying an AI system? Because, yeah, you know, um, that is precisely the point is we want AI models to be performant, to be accurate and to be fair, right? All three things and from a business perspective, from a user perspective, they would like AI systems to be fair to be accurate, to give them the insight that they need and help them get their job done. And sort of, you know, there are trust on both sides, but in, in creating the AI models, you need to train them up. You need to train them up with good data sets. 
you know, it's garbage in, garbage out. If the data sets is not right, your eventual model performance is going to be pretty bad. But then we also have to build in um, some diversity of thoughts and ideas on how the AI models are built in. So, for example, let's say we're building a, a AI model for a mortgage app, right? Um, you fill in a form and you uh, apply for a mortgage loan or fund. Imagine you've had an AI model for it and it was built on data sets that had more, I want to say, let's say males and females, for example. Will it bias the model accuracy towards male applicants? And you don't want it to be, so you have to mitigate that. So those are little things we need to pay attention to so that we can trust AI systems more. Would you tend to do a lot of work on AI systems, obviously, are unique or at least very unusual in that they change and they learn even after we build the system, the data coming in that maybe we don't see until production time can actually change its behavior. How do you manage that risk that, you know, you've got an AI system, you've built it and you were happy with its performance when it was built, but now it's, it's in the wild, it's seeing more data and uh, maybe it starts doing something you don't want or making trade-offs, you know, that we, we wouldn't approve of, we wouldn't, wouldn't be happy with how do you kind of correct for that or any thoughts that design can help with that? So if I were to characterize um, AI, AI is not a one and done thing. It has a life cycle and the life cycle doesn't end with deploying it to production. And the life cycle extends to, okay, now it's in production. We have to learn how the AI system is working, how performant it is, how accurate it is, get the user feedback. So the feedback loop becomes important not just research, but also on sort of uh, instrumentation level data we can collect on, on AI systems. And if we connect them together in, in a loop, that's where we're going to help it make better, et cetera. But there's tools and technologies out there um, to do sort of model performance and bias detection and drift detection and things like that post-production. Like IBM has one called um, IBM Watson OpenScale. So we use the combination of, of tooling instrumentation, user research, funnel the data back, and in some cases, retrain the data set and redeploy. So I, I guess, again, we're on this idea again of, of this, this loop, right? There's a product development loop. It's, we're never done. We're always improving it. And so I guess that when, you know, this is, this is perhaps particularly true for AI products. Is there, is there a maintenance cost associated with that? Would you then shy away or, or be reluctant to to apply AI to a solution where you weren't willing to, to kind of pay that ongoing cost of, of continuous improvement. Yes, indeed. In fact, when we look at our customers or you know organizations that we work with in the adoption of AI, and everyone wants to harness this you know machine learning and, and AI, but they haven't really thought through the cost element of it, the life cycle of it. There's no real magical way to add AI to a product and make it work. You, you have to sort of make it scale and be iterative and run experiments. So building sustainable AI takes organizational change. So there's, we need to provide time for teams to learn and implement into the delivery, continuous delivery process. It's a never ending life cycle of maintenance. So it's a loop, you can continue to do that. You have to maintain your models and the data ops that come with it. And what you tend to find is if you're getting into the field of AI and you want to infuse AI into your products, start with something small. Start, start with something that could be done in six to 12 months. 
so you can vet out the operational and team costs that you will need to scale the, the AI delivery and maintenance and then and the time needed to sort of collect and re-prep data and so on and so forth. So yes, there's definitely a life cycle and cost to it. It's not a one and done process. Now that sort of uh, touches another debate that I, I hear sometimes, which is, you know, we're seeing increasing maturity. Um, it's, I, I agree with you. I think earlier you said that, you know, it was still very early days for AI in terms of its adoption. And that, that totally makes sense to me. But we are seeing gradually increasing maturity. And one question that, um, that I often find comes up is, hey, in 10 years, is this area of AI for products going to be solved to the point where, you know, you just go and you download a library from somewhere? A little bit like how if you want a database now, our databases are pretty good. You don't need to write your own database each time. I'd love to understand how you think about the, the kind of the maturity of this and, you know, do these sort of ethical issues or trust issues specific to AI mean it's going to take a very long time before you can just buy it off the shelf uh, without going on that journey? Great question. I think that the AI technology right now is a little bit ahead of AI adoption. That's one. But in 10 years down the line, I feel like AI is going to be a fabric of everything that we use. So it's invisible, implied. There is a lot more trust built in. But for it to be, you know, like the example of databases, you've got you know, tons to choose from and you can have open source databases. Open source AI, with, which is trusted, it'll take a little bit of time. Right? There needs to be intentional decision-making to contribute towards clear guidelines and policies and principles of ethical AI. Right? So big companies like IBM, et cetera, are working together on generating these AI values and principles. And I feel like once the principles are known and everyone plays within the same rules, it will become inherently more available. Um, you mentioned the principles there. I believe one of your principles I read, and I, I, I may be uh, misquoting here, so correct me if I am, but one principle is to be very clear when the user is dealing with an AI and not a human being, just, you know, again, transparency, and don't be tempted to build an AI that pretends to be a human. Can you comment on that a little bit? Uh, maybe where did that come from? And uh, what other concerns we should keep in mind when, particularly when designing AI that customers actually interact with to get something done? Sort of in an explicit way, like like conversational AI. Yeah. So because there are trust issues um, right now on what AI does or it doesn't do, it is important to be very transparent on the level of engagement and what the user is interacting with. So if it's a bot, you need to not hide it, not make it seem like a real human being, because there is this relationship design that's happening here, right? And if you break the trust early on, you'll never get a user back. So transparency then in, in terms of principles is always being clear about how and where the AI is being used. It's also about privacy in some ways, right? It's about safeguarding customer and consumer privacy and rights. And you know, it's ensuring security of models and data and all of that. But at the end of the day, we need to be transparent to our users that the AI is there for their good it's being driven from data sets that's trustable. It's giving them insights and um, data points that they could actually act on to make their job better. So 
going back to explainability, right? Um, and transparency, they're also interlinked as well. Before we finish up, uh, one question we like to ask people on this podcast, is there someone in the industry that you sort of aspire to or you're inspired by or, or kind of whose work you love and you'd kind of you'd recommend listeners who are interested in learning more about this to kind of to go check out? Uh, unfortunately, for that question, my answer might be a little cliche, but I truly believe in it. So from a craft standpoint and quality of design, I'm a big fan of Johnny Ive. Johnny Ive, Apple, yeah. Yes, um, it, not just for the products, but at the, at the designing for the details, right? That's amazing. On a um, design as a practice, user experience, usability, the ethos of building um, products with the right heuristics. For that, I look up to Don Norman. I mean, he is probably one of the reasons why I'm in this field, because when I read his book, The Design of Everyday Things, it just opened up my, my mind a lot. So those are the two people I can think of. Fantastic, Aaron. I, I, two, two designers, I'm, I'm sometimes out of my depth on a, a design discussion, but two designers that um, I'm familiar with, even I have heard of them. Lastly, before we finish up, where can our listeners go to kind of keep up with you and, and, and your work? Twitter, at Aaron Bomek, LinkedIn. I have a Medium publication where I tend to share stories as well. But I'd also say that it's not just me. Um, I, I represent the, some of the some goodness and the great work that IBM does. So if you're interested in, in knowing a little bit more about some of the things I talked about, so go to ibm.com slash design slash thinking. It has a lot more information about how you can start thinking about designing for AI. So there's an AI essentials toolkit. So um, yeah, you can try that as well. Fantastic, Aaron. Thank you so much. And um, I definitely uh, have been checking out those uh, resources in preparation for this um, on ibm.com. And uh, I thought they were great. So um, thank you very much for being here with us today. And I uh, can't wait to see the direction that you and IBM go in this area in the future. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed our chat with Aaron Palmick. The Inside Intercom podcast archive is an audio library bursting with insights from some of the brightest in business. So do take a browse through the back catalogue. That's about it for today. Join me next week for more Inside Intercom. This is Inside Intercom.